Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Maggie Freeman, and my guest today is Anthony Satin, whose book, Nomads, The Wanderers Who Shaped Our World, was just published by Norton. So thank you so much, Anthony, for joining me. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. So your book, or how I read it, is kind of an alternative world history to the one that we're more accustomed to, where readers encounter major events and civilizations and empires through the lens of nomadism. So instead of starting with the earliest settlements and cities, you start with the hunter-gatherers and pastoralists who moved around those cities. And instead of talking about ancient Greece and Rome, you talk about the Scythians and the Huns. And instead of writing about the Crusaders, you write about the Mongols and the Timurids. So why did you think it was important to focus on nomadic history? What do you think we can learn about history and maybe also about ourselves when we shine a light on this topic? Well, it, it, it is important, um, and it's, it's, but it's not always obvious to us who live uh, settled lives. And, you know, I was brought up in the UK, and um, I traveled around Europe and things as a child and a teenager. And then I went to the Middle East, where I spent um, quite a lot of my, my adult life. And it, suddenly you become aware that nomads are part of everyday life. Um, less and less so, it must be said, but still, it's, it's part of everybody's consciousness. And, and particularly, for instance, you go to Arabia, Saudi Arabia, or Qatar, or Doha, or Dubai, or wherever it is, that these people, it, within living memory, were living nomadic lives, most of them. And, um, and I, so when I was traveling around there, I thought, wow, imagine, I mean, this was just not part of my upbringing and you know i studied history to, to the age of 18 and then then went on to, to become a writer but i i just thought wow this is a whole nother life and so it's just been percolating in my head since then that, that that there is another way of looking at things and and as i say i've spent much of my adult life living in and traveling around the middle east and and north africa and you know many, many of the books i've written nomads have been on the periphery and i just thought maybe now is the time um, you know, I think every book has its has its moment, and this book has come out at a very particular time for me when I was feeling restless and wanted to change my life, which I'm finally in the process of doing. And also, uh, it came out of you know the UK deciding um, Brexit and the US uh, you know, president at the time saying, you know, I'm going to build a wall because we have to keep people out, and suddenly the world was changing in a very significant way. And I thought to write about this history. Um, this other history, which which we are not taught in, in certainly in Western schools, would be in a way a sort of a counterpoint to that. Um, and why is it important to us? Well, imagine, imagine you um, you know you're brought up in London or New York or San Francisco, wherever it is, it is, and you and that's what who you think you are. I'm a London. I was born in London. I was, and then you, suddenly you discover that one of your parents actually is not from London. They're from a completely another place and another world and another world view and that's really how it is with our history books that our history books are written by settled people 
and they're mostly about settled people. And so the more I thought about this, I thought, you look in, you know, what did I get taught about nomads um, in, in my education to 18? I, and I had a very good education, but I, I learned about, you know, Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, and Timur. These were, the, these were the nomads you could name check. And they're all presented as destroyers. You know, they're, they're, their only role is to, dis, is to destroy things. And it ties into a quote from an Oxford historian that I put into the beginning of, of, of the book where um, he, he describes history as a path picked through ruins, which suggests that history is to do with monuments. And um, therefore, if you're a nomad and you tend not to build monuments, the only role you could have in that sort of history is as a, of a destroyer. Right? So th- anyway, the more this has gone on, the more I thought that's just not true. And so we need, we, all of us need to, to be aware that our, our background and our makeup is different to the one that we've been taught. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, you know, your book, you focus on kind of the major sort of nomads, right? The Mongols and the early Islamic empires, kind of the most important ones, let's say, or the ones where you can kind of go into depth. But you also, I think, give the reader kind of glimpses of the fact that every country in the world has a kind of nomadic history or a nomadic past, or maybe not even a past, but also a present, like um, Roma and travelers in the United Kingdom, the Sami in Scandinavia, indigenous peoples um, in North America or Australia and South America. Um, So I think you also give your reader some opportunities to understand even if they're not from, you know, for people who aren't from Central Asia or the Middle East, um, that this kind of nomadic history sort of inflects all of our histories and all of our contexts. Well, the settled history is is a relatively short part of human history. Um, You know, I start the book in 9500 B.C., which is um, which is a good enough place to start because at that point most people, most humans on the planet were moving. They lived mobile lives. They they weren't settled. There weren't towns, villages, cities, and um, and you know in in the human human timeline that that's but yesterday, and um, and yet again it's not reflected in the stories that we're told when we're growing up and it's it's not reflected in most people's viewpoint now either because most people the majority of people alive today live urban um, urban lives they live either in cities or or an urban environment and that's you know that's huge but um the there's there is an argument that um the sort of mindset that we needed when we were all living life on the move is different to the mindset that we that we that we required to have in order to live happily within four walls and within the same four walls every day and every night. And um, there's been some really interesting research done in the States um, into this sort of genetic um, uh, anthropology, which suggests that uh, some of the some of our children who are diagnosed with learning difficulties might actually um, simply be in the wrong place. They'd be much happier not being asked what one plus one is, but asked a whole a whole different set of questions. And the reason for that is when you live life on the move as a nomad, you you need to have diverse thinking. You know, you need to come up with a hundred and one different solutions to the thousand 
uh, problems and that are going to come at you, the variants that will come at you every day. And yet our educations are very much convergent. It is, you know, there is an answer. Um, and so the suggestion is that, that maybe lots of us are actually simply not suited to living the lives that we're either forced to or we're choosing to live. I mean, I have to say very quickly that I'm not nomadic. I'm, I'm quite happy. I, mean, I love traveling around, but I need my base. I need, I need my things around me. I have a ridiculous amount of books. Um, and I need them. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, that's a big question that historians and anthropologists have been grappling with for a long time of why are some people nomadic and some are not? Why does that kind of divergence occur. And so your discussion of what you just talked about of the this kind of nomad gene um, in your book was, I thought, really interesting. This was a new one um, for me. So do you think that that's the solution in your mind? Is that the answer of, to why you know some people nomadize and still do into the 21st century and some people are very happy not to live that way? Or do you think there are other reasons or well, I think that might be some well. of the reason why some people are, for instance, digital nomads today. I mean, I think people who are nomad nomads have come out of a completely different culture and um, and are born into a life that is that is mobile. And most of them are very, very happy doing it. And most of the nomads I've met who've stopped moving have been very restless and, un, you know, and, and, yeah, they feel they've lost a large part of their life by no longer living life on the move. And, but, you know, but... That you know, that's a whole that's a whole different subject. But I think that there's a lot of people today who do live an increasingly mobile life, and that may well be to do with the genetic makeup. It's also to do with the fact how difficult it is to you know to find a property you can afford in in a place you want to live in the city and all that sort of thing. So you know, and why not go and live somewhere where the sun shines? And there are lots of other reasons as well. Right. So maybe we should back up a bit um, and. Maybe could I ask you to try to define a nomad? What do you what what do you think a nomad is? Um, there's a you have an interesting section towards the end of your book where you bring up the fact that in one of the first um, sort of comprehensive English dictionaries published in 1755, by that point in time, nomadism um, was either sort of so irrelevant or just not important of a concept that the word nomad didn't appear in that dictionary. Um, and then when it did in a later edition of the dictionary from 1827, nomad was defined as someone who is rude, savage, having no fixed abode and shifting for the convenience of pasturage. Can you maybe complicate that definition or offer an alternative mm -hmm. one. What does that, what does nomad mean to you when you were writing this? How did you decide what people or lifestyles you were going to focus on? The, the word shifts through the book as it does through time. I mean, initially, the, the word has a very, very, very old origin, way back into sort of early Indo-European language. Um, and so we can't trace it the whole way back because the, the origins of the Indo-European language are still somewhat shrouded, but it, it originally it comes from a word nomos, which means um, pasture or the right to pasture, or therefore the right to access um, grazing on a particular piece of land. And out of that comes, therefore, the idea that you're somebody who herds and who needs to move around. And it, obviously, the absolutely central thing here is that people who herd 
um, need to move move their their flocks, whether they're horses or sheep or goats or whatever it is, camels, to from one area to another, depending on the season, um, to feed them. Um, you know, they they need to be kept alive, and this is obviously pre-industrial, pre having bales of whatever it is of hay or whatever you can shift around. So instead, you moved your your flocks around, and so. Therefore, you were obliged um, by the nature of your work and, and your dependence on it to support yourself and your family to keep on moving. And, you know, that's the absolutely sort of core meaning of the word. And out of it comes a whole different way of seeing the world, which obviously doesn't apply to people who lived settled lives. And, you know, from the, certainly from the 6000 BC, Certainly, again, even more so from the 3000s BC, we have this massive move into settlements. Um, Early 3000 BC, you have the Egyptian dynasties, and therefore the whole way across the Middle East, you have what we would recognize as a city. You know, thousands and thousands of people living in one place, and therefore food is brought into them, and they are required to settle there. And um, But the nomad people have carried on being nomads. And the majority of people... For instance, during the the time when the Egyptian Empire, the 2000, 1000 BC, the majority of people were still living life on the move, most people on the planet. Um, but again, our histories are all about pyramids and, you know, and, and Babylon and Nineveh and, and then Rome and Greece and whatever. But um, even the Roman Empire was entirely dependent on and, and quite largely populated by people who lived on the move. But coming forward in time, obviously this word this word morphs. Um, it still applies. I mean, even in 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 this year, to people who have to have to move around um, in in order to feed their flocks. And I open and close the the book with a visit that I visits that I made to a tribe, the Bakhtiari, in uh, in the mountains in Iran. And the interesting thing about Iran and the reason why true nomadism has, has survived there is because much of the country is very, very difficult to farm. It's either mountain or it's desert, huge upland desert plateau. And, um, but it's very good for, for herders who you know, move up and down. So the Bakhtiari, they, they winter down near the Iraqi border on the plain of what was the Mesopotamian plain where in the winter there's there's grazing there. But in the summer, all the grasses there are burnt out because it's so hot. And so they go up into the mountains. And in the mountains, the, in, by the spring, late spring, all the snows have melted and the mountain grasses and flowers have come out. And therefore, there's grazing for the flocks. And you know, that, whether it's that or in Arabia, you'd, if you had camels, you'd go into the desert in the winter and then pull back out onto the edges of the desert in the summer. And and you know that was that was the the imperative. But in our own time, there's a, a huge number of people who are still um, living mobile lives, but very different mobile lives. Like mobile lives that simply weren't available in you know in in five thousand or ten thousand BC. I mean, traveling salespeople or digital nomads, as I mentioned, people who have a laptop and who can work from anywhere thanks to the internet and and you know and and other things digital banking and you know all these practicalities that people 500 years ago would fail to, to get beyond which means we can we can be anywhere and yet most of us choose not to be most of us choose to be in one place and therefore I do take a broad view on on who is a nomad in our own time and I think maybe even in this I mean some of us get have this absolute need to make a, a pilgrimage to the sea every summer 
And I think there, there might be some echo of, of this very, very ancient uh, nomadic urge within us um, to, to move on, a, on, on an annual, annual migration. Hmm. And so where do you think that these kind of very ingrained cultural notions that we have of nomadism as something negative, where do, where do these come from? Where and when can the origins of some of those stereotypes be located? You know, like you said, when the majority of us, when we learn about nomads in school, it's through this lens of the kind of marauding barbarian, the, you know, savage at the gates of Rome or at the gates of Baghdad. Where, where does this start? Does it start when at this kind of point of divergence, when some people start to build cities and some people stay nomadic? Or where do you think we can locate these stereotypes and their origin point? I think for most of human history, the relationship between settled and nomadic people was a very happy one. It was a, built on a mutual dependence apart from anything else. Nomads need settled people in order to provide them with the things that they can't um, either, either, well, they can't grow or they can't um, make from their flocks. They can, they can make leather, they can spin wool, but, you know, there are things that they can't produce. And the same with people in, in settlements. Um, they need nomads for the nomadic, whatever, whatever nomads will bring them in terms of meat. Iran, for, in, for instance, even today, I mean, I think a third of Iran's meat is produced, by, produced in the mountains from, from these people who move around. And um, but the suspicion comes about when when there's an imbalance, when there's a difficulty, um, as we see in our own time. And you know, when I started writing this, there were millions of Syrians um, fleeing the the trouble in in the Middle East, and uh, Syrians and others, Afghans and and Iraqis, Iranis, and um, and suddenly in Northern Europe we had this massive influx of foreigners. You know, who are they? Why have they come here? And and there's a suspicion, anxiety, because it's a self it's a human thing. It's a self-preservation, and it goes way, way, way back. I mean, as as early as the earliest recorded um, stories, really. Uh, there's a great story of a Sumerian princess, which is from the 2000s BC, who decides she's going to marry this this nomad. Um, and and her friends come out with all the sort of typical tropes about you know anxiety about who this person is. It's well, he's not known. Um, he doesn't know how to say his prayers properly. He wears leather. He eats raw meat. He you know and and they just go on and on. And happily for the princess, she insists. She says, "I'm still going to marry him," <laughs> and she does. But. Um, and it's there throughout history. And I tell a story, for instance, um, we know about the glory of, of the new kingdom, Egypt. This is the Egypt that most of us know about, Tutankhamun, Hatshepsut, Ramses, the great Ramses II, who built you know, some of the best monuments that we go and see now in, in Egypt. There's a period just before this, um, where, which is called an intermediate period in Egyptian history. And the Ancient Egyptians were horrified by it because it was a breakdown of what they considered to be the natural order. And what happened was you had a, a bunch of nomads who came in through the north, and it probably wasn't an invasion. Um, they came in over a period of time until there was a significant number of them living in the north of Egypt. Um, and uh, at a certain point, there was a weak central administration, and these people recognized the, an opportunity to take power. And they took power in the north of the country, um, and they called the, they're called the Hyksos or the Shepherd Kings, or you know they have they have various names. And again, we're not entirely sure exactly who they were, where they came from, or where they went to. 
But what they brought, Egypt had been for a long time very insular and therefore cut off from developments elsewhere in the, in the world. Um, it was absolutely convinced of its own um, superiority as a culture, um, which is why the decline had set in, because everything needs to keep on moving and shifting and growing. And the, what the Hyksos brought was were two great inventions. One is the, the horse with, the, with its bridle um, and attached to a chariot, which the Egyptians didn't have. And the other is the composite bow, which is the Egyptians had used a bow that was made of a single stick of wood, the, it, somewhere in in uh, in cent- central Eurasia, up on the Eurasian steppe, um, there was a, the creation of the composite bow, which was made up of several pieces of wood stuck together with fish glue and gut and all sorts of other stuff. And it's much more accurate and has a much greater range, which is why it, what allowed the Hyksos to defeat the Egyptian army. The Egyptians, over a period of 150 years, learn how to how to, to use these new inventions, turn them back on the hexos, throw them out, and you then get the establishment of this glorious pe- period of Egyptian history, the most glorious of all. It's not in our history books. And you, and you go to Egypt now, and, and they don't tell you this story. But, it, of course, we know it. We know it from our own time. Um, you know, the, 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 the great period of, of North American um, development and post-Second World War was partly due to the amount of uh, Europeans and others who, who ran to the States as a place of safety during the Second World War, Einstein being an obvious one, um, and, and who then, you know, then produce extraordinary work, which then helps to, to fuel the, you know, the North American engine. And, but that's not necessarily the story that, that our leaders and our sense of identity allows us mm. to tell. Mm. Okay. Um, and so, if I could ask about the sources that you used in writing this, you know, I think one of the reasons um, that the history of nomads is so kind of understudied and underrepresented is because of this problem of a lack of sources created by nomadic peoples, right? So with the kind of conventional tools of the historian relying on written records and the archaeological record, nomadic peoples, you produce relatively little of both. So in your book, you know, you have to rely on written sources about nomads produced by outsiders. So, you know, the Greco-Romans like Herodotus and Ammianus or Marco Polo, um, who we're all familiar with Ibn Khaldun um, for the medieval Islamic world. Um, so what, what are some of the challenges with that? You know, how do you write a text that's supposed to be kind of, you know, you're trying to present the history of nomads in a kind of more positive light, or at least kind of reframe this more negative image that we all have? How do you do that when you have to rely on these texts that are not necessarily produced by people who are very positive about the nomads around them? Well, let's just say it's not easy. (laughs) Um, uh, Well, one reason why this book took eight years to produce is because of the difficulty of of exactly that. And, And had I tried to write it, say, 150 years ago, it would have been impossible because that one element you mentioned, which is archaeology, there have been huge um, steps forward with archaeology and, and wonderful things discovered. And so, for instance, 
with the Scythians, um, who who I like very much, who who appear, I think, around the 600s BC and are, are active around the Black Sea and in in that whole swathe of Eurasia until um, until the, at least the sort of 200s, 300s AD. And there, you know, there was a there was a really good exhibition of the Scythians in the British Museum about what five years ago, six years ago. And um, and apart from anything else, it was fascinating because. Everybody I know who went, none of us knew anything about Scythians before. I was like, who? <laughs> and a major exhibition. And then you go along and you, you realise that this is, this is a sophisticated culture. This is not, these are not barbarians. Um, and there was a really good conference where all the world experts on, on Scythia had gathered in London. And uh, three days of papers and whatever else. And then I realised that they didn't even know what, we don't even know what they called themselves. They didn't call themselves Scythians. That's a Greco-Roman invention. Um, and it's the same with their counterparts, the Xiongnu, who are um, Mon- Mongolian, um, what, we, what we would call Mongolian um, origin people, um, who are around at about the same time as the Scythians during the, during the Han China um, period. And, they're certainly not called Xiongnu because Xiongnu translates as something like, you know, sl- child of slave or offspring of, yeah, offspring of slave. So that's obviously not what the Xiongnu called themselves. So we don't even know what they're, what they're called. And therefore the difficulties of trying to write about them are enormous. And the, there, there are two leading authorities, one Herodotus for the Scythians and uh, the grand historian of China for the Xiongnu. But you take their stories, um, and Herodotus, you know, went to the Black Sea and and got closer than anybody else I know at that period to, to being able to tell us um, firsthand about the Scythians. I mean, there were, for instance, Scythians in, in um, ancient Athens. They were part of the defense force, Scythian archers. Um, but again, they were sort of, you know, when, when, when you read reports of them, they're always presented as, you know, as, as the fool or as the people to mistrust. There were the Athenians talked about being drunk as a Scythian because the Greeks diluted their wine, but the Scythians like to drink their wine undiluted and obviously did get drunk. Um, and, uh, Herodotus reports that Scythians like to get high as well. They used, um, some sort of cannabis or hemp, um, built a tent burnt lots of this stuff in a tent. They all sat there breathing there for a while, and he described they came out sniggering and laughing and falling over. And uh, But that was clearly part of some um, some religious ritual. Um, lots of cultures use drugs to try and get to the other side. But uh, the difficulties of writing about these people... So what we now know, thanks to archaeology, is that there are burials the whole way from close to the... the borders of the Roman Empire and close to the Great Wall of China, and across that huge expanse, which is larger than either the Chinese or the Roman Empire, which I think was was it, it, its own nomadic empire at the same time. And there are burials east and west in that in that massive area across Eurasia, which is which where you find similar things being buried. You find Chinese silks, whether in the east or the west, you find Roman not Roman necessarily Roman made, but Roman inspired gold jewelry. You find um, you find pottery. You find and and you, you realize that these people were buried were being buried, and these are obviously significant burials, um, huge mounds with you know, you know it might be sort of 
50 or 100 yards um, across, very, very high, um, and with lots and lots of horses sacrificed uh, with, with the, to help the deceased reach, you know, to fly into the, into the other world. Um, but these are sophisticated people. And thanks to that sort of discovery, archaeological discovery, and the text that we have from the ancients, I, you know, I pieced together what I what I could. I mean, happily, when you get closer to you know to the modern period, I mean, for instance, with the Mongols, there are there are written texts, but it is it is a, a truism that nomads tend not to write things down, and they tend not to leave too many inscriptions. I mean, Genghis Khan, when he set off because he believed he was on a divine mission, did carve you know carve his name and the, the date of of his first expedition to try and enlarge his power. Um, but it's really thin compared to the, the the other texts, and therefore you you know you rely on people who who sit in four walls and who write history, and they are the settled. And then you have to try and work out what their prejudices are, and um, you know prejudices prejudices not just of being settled, but of their time, and then try and you know draw back from that. Okay, what is it we can extract from that that we could reasonably feel confident in saying but yeah it's 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 i mean who would do it what a mad venture <laughs> <laughs> so if i could um stay in archaeology um and this quote that you brought up earlier of um, history is a path picked through ruins um so that we tend to construct history and our ideas of history based on these kind of architectural and archaeological vestiges that are left behind through monuments and through ruins. Um, and so nomads who tend not to produce a lot of monuments or buildings in stone that can become ruins tend to get left out of our ideas of history as a result. Um, but you start your book with the site of Gebekli Tepe in Turkey, uh, which you present as kind of a counterpoint to this idea that nomads don't produce kind of monumental stone structures. Can you talk about that and about what the site of Gebekli Tepe is and its significance? Yeah, Gebekli Tepe is, um, is the reason why I opened the book at 9,500 BC, because around then there's a group of people, and we don't know where they came from, we don't know much about them, Gobekli Tepe is down um, in south, southern Turkey near the Syrian border, near a place called Urfa or Sanli Urfa. And um, a, you know, around 9,500 BC, a group of hunter-gatherers uh, recognized this as a sacred place. Maybe it already had been a sacred place. And for a reason that we can't, you know, it's difficult to recover. Maybe something happened there. Maybe there was a volcano because there are volcanoes in that area that they could see or that was seen to be erupted or there was an alignment of stars or something which we don't have access to, which made that spot sacred. It's also very good because the first time I went there, I stood there and I thought, it's it's the end of a gully in, in hills. And so were you to be a hunter-gatherer and chasing game into into a trap, that would be that's a perfect trap. And so at the end of this run, you have a hill, and that's where Gobekli Tepe sits on the top. And what, what was constructed there was a circle of stone pillars. <clears throat> Excuse me. A circle of stone pillars that are about uh, 10 feet, 10 to 12 feet high. And they're limestone and properly cut and you know, straight lines, T-shaped top to them, um, about a dozen put in a circle around and, in, and two larger ones placed in the middle. And uh, 
the stones hadn't been dragged from very far, but from about 500 meters or, or at, the, at the most. And but still, these are huge stones which took a lot of effort to cut and to shape and to move. And then to decorate, because they have decorations of recognizably human and animal figures. And these are animal figures that would have been threatening or associated with, um, with the gods. So there are vultures and there are foxes and there are um, yeah, beasts, beasts, uh, beasts of animals of prey. And um, you know, it, this, is, this is an extraordinary thing because you think, where did this art come from? Where did this architecture come from? We will, of course, find out where it came from. It, it didn't just spring out of, out of nowhere. It, it, it came from somewhere. But this, you know, this is 7,000 years before the pyramids or Stonehenge. I mean, this is immensely early. And um, it was discovered in the 1990s by a, a German um, academic, Klaus Schmidt, who um, who'd been working on Neolithic sites, you know, in that area, and then recognised that this was a, you could only just see the tops of the of the of the columns uh, sticking out of the ground, and he started excavating and realised that no, it wasn't just this one circle; that the whole hillside is made up of circles, and. Um, and he also worked out there's a huge trough for brewing beer, and uh, which again was was used as part of some religious ceremony to get got drunk in those days, not just for the pleasure of it, but also for for the you know to, to free your mind from your body, to free the spirit. Um, and uh, and it's about 25 miles from where so far has been found the earliest strain of domesticated wheat, and. You know, you you can only piece piece the story together from what you have. And uh, when I first started this, for instance, Gobekli Tepe was the only site that had been discovered in that area. Since then, there's a couple of others that have been discovered, and there probably will be lots more as well. And in Ufa itself, the nearby city, uh, there's a the largest, um, the earliest life size figure of a human, um, a, a sculpture of a man. In the same in the same style as the, the figures carved on the pillars at Gobekli Tepe, from the same period, uh, that sits in a museum in Orfa. He's called Orfa Man, and um, and there was clearly a lot going on there. But Orfa is a very is a sacred site for Muslims because they believe it's the birthplace of the Prophet Abraham, and therefore no one's going to be digging there for the foreseeable future. But it could be you know in that whole area there were clearly lots and lots of things happening um around 9500 bc and for about a thousand years um that, so there are, there's a development and so at the very beginning these are hunter gatherers and they start constructing things while they're still hunting and gathering and clearly and this is my um extraction from the from the evidence um what happened was they hunted and gathered all that they could but they needed to be there in order to build this, these monuments. And therefore you have a, a re- relatively large community. The number of people you can, as hunter-gatherers, who can live on about a square mile is very, very few, sort of 15, 20 maximum. And you've got more of those, more than that building these monuments. And therefore, it's not impossible. that This is the beginning of the Neolithic or the agricultural revolution. This is where farming begins, that they domesticate wheat in order to feed these people. And and the settlement comes about. And by the end of the, the period that Gobekli Tepe is used, um, clearly it is a settlement and people do live there all the time. Some of them anyway. And and then one day, boom, they leave. We don't know why. They just left. And because you know, they, they had covered up 
quite a few of the stone circles and and that's where they sat until the 1990s, which is quite extraordinary. And there, there's lots, lots more. Into, I mean, Turkey is so rich with, and, and Syria as well with this sort of site um, that uh, were it not a war zone, I'm sure we'd be finding a lot more very quickly now. And so later in your book and sort of later in history, you do write about other um, sort of archaeological uh, structure or... Uh, remnants produced by nomadic communities, including cities like with the early Islamic uh, caliphates or the Mongol Empire. Um, but then you also, you're, but you're also relying on Ibn Khaldun's uh, kind of cyclical theory of civilization, where he, according to him, you know, all great empires, all great civilizations, kind of start with a nomadic people that conquers um, and then when they kind of have to take on this task of ruling um, they settle down they build cities they kind of become accustomed to this life of luxury and then they sort of lose that nomadic instinct that thing that made them conquerors um, and sort of world builders in the first place and so their empire that they built declines, and then they're conquered by another nomadic per another nomadic group, and then the cycle begins again. So do you kind of agree with that based on your research? Do you think that, I mean, what he's kind of arguing is that nomadism and building cities, living this kind of life of luxury that we associate with urbanism do you think that that's mutually exclusive with nomadism yes it seems to be i mean there are two important things with, with ibn khaldun <clears throat> so i'm going crooky again <clears throat> there are two important things with ibn khaldun and the first is this idea of of cyclical history that things don't get better and they don't necessarily get worse. They just go around and around. They have their ups and they have their downs. And um, it's tempting to think that maybe he's right. You know, the, the, we've been so convinced about our own brilliance and superiority in our own time. And yet, you know, we, clearly we've messed something up. and We sped up the cycle of nature, of, of the climate in our, in our own time. And that's got out of hand and will probably calm down again. Maybe after we've gone, who knows? I mean, but... but um, I, there, there is something in that, but more interesting is is his idea that um, the purest people, the 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 origin of humans is is the nomad. It's sort of this unfettered goodness, strength, strength, moral strength as well as physical strength, and that <clears throat> and that when we settle. Um, particularly when we settle in cities, uh, we become weaker, we become more corrupted. And it, it's an inevitability. Um, and also the thing that holds nomad people, nomadic peoples together, which is a, what he describes as asabia, which is sort of a group bond, a group feeling, um, weakens because you're no longer entirely dependent on each other out there in the natural world. You're living in an unnatural world in the city and those bonds no longer apply and therefore they fall apart and you become much more of an in individual and in independent person and your leader lives behind a wall somewhere in his palace and you no longer have access to him he's not living in the tent next door um, and 
And in that process, humans lose something and they become more liable to theft, to corruption, to lying, to cheating, to uh, obesity, to... And all. And there's a great line from Herodotus, which is therefore jumping right back again into the Greek world, where he talks about Cyrus the Great, who's the founder of the Persian Empire, 500s BC. And Cyrus is on his way home after a, after a big campaign and... Um, you know, he's just created the largest empire the world had ever known up until that point. And one of his generals said to him, you know, Persia is so, such a hard land. You know, as I said, it's, it's desert or it's mountain. And, he, and, and why, you know, we've conquered all these beautiful places. Why can't we go and live in them? And Cyrus says, if we go and live there, we will very soon lose our empire because hard lands produce hard people and soft lands produce soft people. And in a way, that is something that is echoed in in, um, in Ibn Khaldun, that sense of, you know, if you come out of the desert, which is a hard life, a physical hard life, and also, you know, morally hard life, and you're, you're there constantly at the, at, um, you know, having to deal with the, with the force of nature. Um, and you're in, a, you're in, you know, you're living within your four walls with a roof. And what's the worst thing that happens? You spring a leak or, you know, or, something you know something like that and therefore in that process you are transformed and not necessarily ibn khaldun thought not necessarily for the better now i I would say you know i'm not suggesting we should all live on as nomads i don't think we should all immediately leave the city i think wonderful you know the city is one of the great human inventions and wonderful things have come out of it but there is a sense in the nomad story that the creation of cities is therefore the beginning of the end for nomads. It takes a hugely long time. But out of that comes the invention, and they all come out of China, the invention of gunpowder, the compass, and paper. And therefore you have the end of needing to know your land, because you have a compass and paper, you have a map paper you no longer sit around a campfire telling stories you no longer have that huge memory which we all used to have where we could remember the entirety of, of, of narratives her all herodotus stories were not written down initially they were told the quran is still memorized by people from beginning to end we all had that ability at one point but books and now screens mean that we don't have to do that and that we lose those abilities gunpowder compass and paper and the gunpowder and these things arrive in europe thanks to the nomadic intermediaries who created and ran the silk roads and brought these things from china to europe and the europeans did what europeans have been very good at throughout well certainly throughout the last thousand years and that is we scaled them up and weaponized them and you know when conquered the world uh, with those three three things the chinese had used gunpowder for you know for scaring away spirits there was but we turned it into into deadly weapons and when you have that, then the, the end of the, of the idea of nomad empires is inevitable. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't the great um, moral superiority or work ethic or anything else of um, North American settlers that allowed them to defeat the native peoples in North America. It was the fact they had guns, and lots of them, you know, and from the Gatling gun to the Maxim gun to the and you know, and that's you know, that's the that's the reality of that. And so, once you have those weapons, you have huge cannon and everything else. Then, then your your nomad empires are 
inevitably going to, going to become a thing of the past. And that's been the story, you know, that's the last third of my book is, is charting not only that decline, but also that the sense among settled people that as nomads disappear from view, that we're losing something important. And I think you know, that in a way, to me, this is, this is one of the things I started with at the beginning of the book. And that is that sense of well, what have we lost? By you know, there was a time when we all recognised that the nomads actually ruled the world, and now you know, yeah, seventeen seventeen fifties, they didn't even get into the English dictionary. Well, they do get into the dictionary now, but mostly when we talk about them, we get all nostalgic and romantic, and we think about how lovely it is to wander from you know, midnight at the oasis, and you know, and all that sort of stuff, and and. That's not nomad nomad life either. I mean, nomad life is difficult and it's hard and it demands things. And and I've met lots of nomads who would like to live a softer, more gentle life. And yet they're driven to carry on living the way they live. And, and I've met a lot of nomads who would wish their children, and they're sort of completely divided on this, because on the one hand, they want their children to maintain and to be part of this rich world that, that they are part of, um, which is in balance with the natural world, which has a whole different set of values to, to our city values. But at the same time, they want them to be part of the 21st century, and therefore they need to send them to school. And, you know, I've, I've seen nomads in Iran and elsewhere who, who are still living nomadic lives, but you can see from the glow in their tents at night, they've got a battery and a solar panel and a, and, a, and a satellite and they're watching they're watching movies on their on their laptops and they're making calls on their mobile phones and they're you know they are part of part of the world and they've been educated they went to school they're, but they're very very few mostly it's either either or hmm. okay um so maybe a final question um to bring us kind of into the present and into the future maybe you know according to that cycle that we were just talking about ibn khaldun's um cyclical theory right now we are in this period where nomadism is very much on a downswing if not sort of dying out or perhaps already died out um but do you think that there's a possibility for a kind of resurgence of nomadism, like the examples that you brought up earlier of digital nomadism and an increased interest and kind of technological ability to work um, and kind of maintain our the lives that we're accustomed to while living on the move. Do you think that there's a potential for a sort of renewed interest um, among people today in living nomadically, you know, is that possible within the context of the structures and institutions that govern our lives today? Well, first, I think um, it, from what we can tell from statistics, that, that the nomad population might have remained relatively stable over the last 12,000 years. Um, what's changed is the settled population it went, you know, went from millions to hundreds of millions to billions. And, and, you know, that's just gone completely mad. And, um, I think that, you know, there, let, let's keep nomads and, and digital nomads separate for a minute. And I think, you know, that there are still there and there are always going to be, um, people who herd and need to go in search of pasture for the for, for pasture for their, for their herds. And that's always going to happen. Um, 
governments like like to settle them because they're difficult, very difficult to tax, to control, to um, to educate, uh, and when you know when you move around. So there's always a desire to to have them in in one fixed place. But there's also recognition, as I mentioned in Iran, that nomads produce a significant amount of of Iran's meat, and therefore. There's a Ministry of Nomadic Affairs that that regulates this stuff, and and you know, and they they're not going to stop. They're not going to yeah. They're not going to end nomadism anytime soon in Iran. And I think for that, there's something really important we can all learn from nomads because here are people who have always recognised um, something that we settled people have only recently recognised, and that is we are all entirely dependent on the natural world and our relationship with it. Um, you know, it was only, only in the early 1990s in the States when you had Biosphere 2 in, in Arizona that, you know, we, we locked uh, locked eight people in, in a sealed unit for, for two years and discovered absolutely beyond, beyond doubt that what happens in one part of the world has a consequence in the other and that we are all dependent on the fact that our plants grow and our, and our oceans are happy and, you know, and that we can generate oxygen and stuff like that and and nomads have always known that and so i think there's you know there's something really important that we can learn from that and i think there's more there are more and more people who have an interest in going to look for it um and maybe not live that life but at least engage with it in a way that it hasn't been engaged with before and i think also yes the the idea of borders walls you know, this is partly my, as someone called, my ode to mobility. And it's also my protest at uh, Brexit because and the idea that we would draw up our, you know, pull up our drawbridges on this island, which is why I'm now leaving it, because I absolutely protest at the idea that, that people shouldn't be able to move freely around the world. Of course, we should be able to. We should be able to work where we want and settle where we want and have children where we want and and you know that's an absolute basis of, of of life and i think there are lots and lots of people who think like that in the world and i and in that there is digital nomadism you know i mean i'm a writer therefore i i sometimes have a piece of piece of paper and a pencil i can write anywhere and i have you know in the days before the internet when i when i was traveling and writing for the sunday times in london i you know I, I, I was writing a novel while I was going around the world. I spent a year year just in motion. I did very, very happily. There are lots of people who are doing that. Even in even in the United States, massive counterculture, subculture of people who live in what what's brilliantly called wheel estate rather than wheel estate, who live out of their trucks or their vans or their cars, motorbikes, whatever it is, caravans, and you know, which was partly captured by the, the film Nomadland. Is estimated, I think, by 2050, there are going to be billions of people living like that in the world. It's it's a major, major, major force, and it will obviously, as that grow, will reshape how everybody else feels about all sorts of nomadism. And therefore, I hope my book will be read for many years to come. <laughs> great. Well, thank you. I think that's a great note to end on. Um, thank you so much for joining me. I absolutely loved your book. I think it's a really much needed, very timely kind of corrective to our sort of conventional understandings of world history and the forces and influences that have shaped the world that we live in today. So thank you for writing it. And thank you for joining me. Thank you, Maggie. It's been a pleasure.